Well, good morning, Blackman uh, Baptist Church. And, and why I say that, I'm actually talking to a lot of empty seats this morning, right? And we understand that um, our nation is uh, going through probably one of the most unique and, and honestly scary times right now with the coronavirus. We don't really know what to expect. Uh, a lot of us are looking at, at you know, jobs and economy and work. Uh, and we're not here this morning because, honestly, we just want to keep everyone safe and, and do what's best for us as a family. But I do want you to know that we're praying for you this morning. We love you. Uh, and everything's okay because God's in charge and God's in control and we don't have any reason to fear. So if you're at home, if you're able to listen to this, um, I, I am still going to deliver the message that I prepared for you this week uh, in Luke chapter 2. So if you're with your family or you're by yourself in your office, maybe you're just driving in your car, whatever it may be, I don't know. But if you get your Bible, just go ahead or, or, or your phone or whatever. Luke chapter 2 is where we're going to be at this morning. Now, I know what you're thinking. Okay, Luke chapter 2, this is not Christmas time. Yeah, I get that. But remember something, and I've said it before, that familiarity can sometimes breed apathy. That if we're not careful, we'll just read through a common text and we'll forget what actually is trying to be said. But in here is something incredibly powerful and unique. So Luke chapter 2, we'll go there in just a moment, but I do want to first recount a story uh, that I've learned to love. Uh, there was a young man, and he was driving with his parents uh, off to see family. He was really, really little at this point. He was, he was under the age of three, so only about two, two and a half. And they were T-boned. They got in a car wreck. His side was the uh, behind the driver's side, and he got hit on his left side. Now, the family was okay by and large, but the young man actually had to have his arm amputated. And so obviously this is a unique challenge for him. His parents did all they could to make life as normal as possible and to help him the best they could. But nonetheless, he still struggled with some confidence issues as he grew older. So his mother came up with a brilliant idea. She was going to try to uh, enroll him in some sort of extracurricular activity to kind of boost that confidence and, and, and kind of help him overcome his, his uh, subconscious uh, anxiety over the fact that he had no longer had the use of his uh, left arm. And so his mom actually enrolled him in judo classes. And, and it sounds uh, like, you know, how would he do this? But judo works with a lot of throws, and, and you don't necessarily have to have, you know, both your arms. It actually uses your hips and your back more than anything else. And so it was actually perfect for him. Now, when he went in to, uh, for his first lesson, a teacher in particular took incredible interest in the young man. The teacher was actually the owner of the martial arts studio. He said, young man, you're going to work with me every time you come in. We're going to work for an hour and a half every time, just me and you. I said, okay. And so as they were practicing, his teacher taught him exactly one move. That was it. And for literally two years, every time he'd come into the studio, they would go in for an hour and a half. They would practice this one move over and over and over and over again. And, of course, as time went on, the young man began to ask, look, teacher, look, I, I get this, but shouldn't I be learning something else? This is great. I really appreciate it, but I want more. And he said, look, just focus on this. So for two years, it became so embedded in him that his muscle memory was just there. He could... He, he knew this particular throw in his sleep. He understood it. He could see exactly when to, to act on it. So all he knew how to do was to fend someone off long enough for him to do this throw, and that was it. So after about two years, his teacher said, I think you've got it. You're, it's as good as I've ever seen. And he put him in a tournament. 
Now, look, these are kids and teenagers, even some adults, that have been practicing judo for years, some well over a decade, and he's competing at one of the highest levels at this point, and he's like, I don't know what I'm doing. So he gets there, and he goes to the first round, and he had made a goal for himself. He said, if I can just get past the first round, I'll be happy. I mean, honestly, I've done better than I thought. Sure enough, the match begins, and it was almost too easy. He just dispatched his opponent without any issue whatsoever with just that one throw. Uh, then you came to the divisional round. Uh, it, it took a little bit longer, but he still just, boom, that throw went in. One throw, easy, done. He won the match, and he finally went to the semifinals. Now, this took a little bit longer. It was harder. It, it, was, it, it was drawn out just a little bit, but his opponent overreached, and finally he was able to perform his throw again. And so now he's in this championship. He has no idea why he's here or how he got there, but he's there. Going against this opponent who was the defending champion from the previous year. So he knows it's done, but I mean, he got farther than expected. The bout lasted for 10 minutes, which in, in judo tournaments is incredibly long. And finally, after fending him off, fending him off, he was able to complete his throw, and he won the championship. So he's riding in the car back with his teacher, and he said, I don't, I don't understand what just happened to me. How on earth did I win this? His teacher smiled. He said, well, two things. He said, for the last two years, I've been training you on what is considered one of, if not the most difficult throw in all of judo. There are people who have practiced their entire lives, and they can't do it like you've done it. It's incredible. And number two... This particular throw only has one known defense, and that's to hook the inner elbow of your opponent's left arm. He said, your weakness has made you unstoppable. (laughs) The title of this morning's message was Strength Hidden in Weakness, and there's a point. God delights in using the weakness of man to show himself unstoppable. He does it all throughout Scripture. He takes a guy named David with a a rock and a slingshot and topples a giant. He takes uh, little-known heroes like Jephthah that no one cares about and conquers some of the mightiest armies in the world. God chooses to use weakness to show himself great. And nothing is more uh, pictured uh, of this truth than here in Luke chapter 2 at the birth of Christ. That God himself is about to use an infant to change the world. I'll be honest with you. No one likes to be weak. No one likes to be vulnerable. But the reality is, is that if we will embrace our weakness... That if we will accept our inabilities and rely on God's strength, we'll find that that's the very moment that God can work through us the most. So I'm going to pray really quick, and then I'm going to give you a few points. And I hope that this will be a blessing to you, as I know it's challenged me. Lord Jesus, be with my church family. That they're sitting at home with a lot of unknowns. I ask that you keep them safe. I ask that you protect their homes, but I ask that you use this time for your glory. 
I ask now that you'd bless my words, give me clarity of thought, and help me now, Lord, to be a blessing to my brothers and sisters through you. Hide me behind the cross and let your word have free course and change our hearts so that we are not the same after today. Amen. So Luke chapter 2, begin reading. Here's the word of the Lord. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the whole empire should be registered. Now, this registration took place while Quirinius uh, was the governing of Syria. So everyone went and to be registered, each into his own town. Now, pause here. The first thing I want you to understand is that weakness, God uses weakness to reveal his sovereignty. You say, what do you mean? Well, just trace the story. This was the exact perfect time during the Roman Empire. But it was also the weakness of God's people in captivity. Israel had been captured. Their, Israel, uh, their nation was divided into two kingdoms. They were conquered first by the Assyrians and the Babylonians, who were then conquered by the Persians, who were conquered by the Greeks, who were then conquered by the Romans. Ultimately, they had never tasted freedom for over a thousand years constantly under someone's control, constantly waiting for a king. For 400 years at the end of Malachi, they had heard nothing from God, no revelation whatsoever, yet they were longing for a king, and they were longing for freedom. And here they were under the rule of a wicked, tyrant, Gentile kingdom of the Romans, and yet there could not have been a better time for Christ to come. Because during, most sociologists will agree that during this time of the Roman Empire, this was called the Pax Romana, the, the Roman peace time. This was when they were at their most powerful point. They had established roads. They had a, a universal language, which was Konai Greek, that they could speak and, and everyone could basically understand. Uh, they had uh, an a easy realm of interstate traveling that the borders no longer really mattered as much because you had one large empire controlling everything. I mean, ultimately, there was not a better moment for the gospel, but not a worse moment for God's people. Understand this. Understand that it was through God's weakness in his people that his power was being displayed in his sovereignty. Number two, we also see it was the right people, Joseph and Mary. In verse four, it says, Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family line of David to be registered along with Mary, who was engaged to him and who was pregnant. Now, understand, there's a lot there, okay? Mary's life was forever changed and not for the better in some regards. She was having an illegitimate child in the minds of everyone else. Of course, she saw the angel. She knew what was going on. But everyone else, and now it's just a huge stain on her life in the opinion of other people who don't believe her. You had Joseph, who married her anyway, out of love and kindness. He knew what was going on. But for their family, it was a mark that would follow them forever and ever and ever. It was from a poor family who lived, who would be in Galilee and in Nazareth. And, and really, these are the, the areas that were considered almost the, the bad areas of town that you wouldn't want to go to. 
They had no money, no resources. And now they're packing up and they're going all the way across about 120 to 200 miles from where they were to go and try to find a place to stay. They can't find anything. They're in basically a barn or a stable. And there they are having their firstborn child in the worst possible situations and conditions that could be imagined. But yet it was perfect. Because now Christ was through the line of David and fulfilled prophecy both through Joseph and through Mary. God's sovereignty was being used in the worst possible moment of a couple's life. You say, what are you trying to say here? Well, it's pretty simple. I don't know what's going on in your life. You could be worried about your finances. You could be worried about your family. We're struggling. Everyone is. Life is hard, and there's pain, and there's suffering, and there's things that we just don't get. But what I can tell you is that even though I can't understand why God allows things to happen that we don't want to happen, he's in control. And he's working something that you can't see or understand. But it is going to be beautiful. It is not our job to question his motives because his heart is always love. It is our job simply to understand his sovereignty. I remember I I used to work with tile a little bit. Now, don't ask me to do your backsplash. It will look messed up, okay? But... I used to, under supervision, <laughs> do some tile work. And I was, remember I was helping somebody. They were doing a, a, a pattern for a, a church floor. And I walk up, and he's got a very expensive piece of tile, and he has one of those rubber mallets, and he's got it, like, all contained, and then he just shatters it. I'm like, what on earth are you doing? He said, I'm making a mosaic. And I said, well, I don't know what that is. And so he said, well, look, you take these broken pieces, and he laid down the mud, and he put them in different arrangements. He took different colors and put them in there. And when it was all said and done, it was beautiful. He said a mosaic is just crushed pieces of tile thrown together to make artwork. Hmm. I want to remind you of a promise in Romans eight twenty eight. It says that God works everything together for good for those who love God and are called. Now, understand something. The, the verse did not say everything is good. Okay, that, that's not what that said. Genocide, the Holocaust, uh, horrible crimes against children or whatever it may be, th- these are not good things. But that verse says that God is able to work them together for good. So here's what that means. God can take the broken pieces of our lives, no matter what happens, and put them together to make something beautiful. That's what he did in Luke chapter 2. He took a broken nation, a hurting couple, and he was bringing redemption. And in your life, he wants to make something beautiful through your weakness. Weakness not only reveals God's sovereignty, but it also shows God's beauty. Verse 8, hear the word of the Lord. In the same region, shepherds were staying out in the fields and keeping watch at the night over their flock. 
Then an angel of the Lord stood before them. The glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. Well, yeah, I would be too, okay? Giant, glowing person. Terrified. Makes sense. But the angel said to them, don't be afraid. For look, I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the city of David, a Savior was born for you. Who is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be the sign for you. You'll find a baby wrapped tightly in cloth, lying in a manger. You say, what, what's the point here? Well, first off, this is an incredibly unique situation. You see, shepherds, they, they weren't necessarily outcasts in the sense that, because they, they, they raised um, the, the temple lambs. But many of the Pharisees at this time actually couldn't stand them, and they were looked as spiritual um, uh, just lower because almost not quite the level of publicans, but close because their jobs out of necessity kept them working on the Sabbath. So literally because of what I do, I cannot honor this commandment and therefore they were considered to be less than. And to have an angel appear before him and say, look, incredible news, the Messiah's come and he's come for you. Wow. But then he reveals something to the shepherd. He says, Here's where you're going to find him, in a feeding trough, down there as a baby. (laughs) They couldn't believe it. Wait, the Messiah, our king, in in a stable? Verse 15, when the angels had left them and returned to heaven, the shepherds said one to another, let's go straight to Bethlehem and see what's happened, which the Lord has made known to us. They hurried off and found both Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. And after seeing them, they reported the message they were told about this child. And all that heard it were amazed that shepherds said to them, or what the shepherds said to them. If you're going to write something down, write this down. Vulnerability is wildly attractive. You hear a child cry, you run to it. You can't resist that. Unless you're truly a callous person. You see someone hurting, it is natural for the humankind to run to them. It is man's weakness that draws other men to them. Why? Because vulnerability, vulnerability is a sign of our need to be loved and our openness to love others. Shepherds would never have come to see a prince walking through the streets. They've seen it before. They weren't interested in seeing another Herod or another Roman general. But the moment they hear that their king is a baby shivering in the night, wrapped in a, uh, in a cloth, lying in some barn, they can't help but run to him. Vulnerability draws people in. I love what C.S. Lewis said. He wrote a book. It's called The... The four loves. He says, to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything in your heart will be wrung, possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it'll change. It won't be broken. It'll become unbreakable. 
impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. Why would God, the Son of God, come down as a man, 100% man, 100% God, but be born as a child, as an infant, completely and totally defenseless because of love? And that kind of love is incredibly beautiful. Well, how does that apply to us? Well, the logic's pretty simple, right? We're commanded to love one another. And we can't love until we're vulnerable. And so therefore, we're commanded to be vulnerable. One of the number one reasons people don't come to church, they'll tell you, is because the church is full of hypocrites, and they're right. The word hypocrite there, it literally means to speak from behind a mask. It was a, it was a term for people in a play. And I'm just so sick of coming to church and putting on a play. You're fighting with your wife in the car, or you're yelling at your kids. Next thing you know, we've we got to make sure that everyone thinks we've got it all together. I love that song by Matthew West where he says, you know, I say I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine, but I'm not. I'm broken. But we're terrified to let people in. And because of that, we push people away. No wonder it says in James that we as a church are commanded to be open with one another. James says that we are to confess our faults to one another. Now understand, here's what James is actually saying. So there's two Greek words. There's uh, armatia and armatama. So armatama means our faults and wrongdoings. So that's individually saying these are the sins I've committed this week. That is not what James is saying. James is not saying come in and just spread all your dirty laundry and tell everybody every last thing wrong you've done. What he's actually saying is armatia, which is a state of mind. Come into the church and say, hey, this is where I'm at. I'm lonely. I'm scared. I'm hurt. I'm struggling. Why? So we can love you. And so that you can love us. I desire a church body that will just be real with one another. We don't have to hide. We're, we're not enemies. We, we want to love you. And hopefully you'll love us in return. But that means we have to risk being real. But let me tell you, church, if we'll do this, <laughs> it will draw people in. Because once they know that Blackman Baptist Church is not some place for the holy, but is a worship house for the broken, people will flock to it. If we'll only allow ourselves to be vulnerable and weak. We don't have to be Superman. We can be human. And it's okay. Because that's when God can work through us. Just like he did here in Luke. Lastly, and my time's running out. Weakness is necessary. Understand, there is no relationship with God where you are the one in control. God must have us weak before 
he can show himself strong. Verse 19 and 20, I love this. It said, but Mary was treasuring up all these things in her heart and meditating on them. And the shepherds returned, glorifying, praising God for all the things he had seen and heard, which had just been told. Mary had a long thought, essentially. This little baby that was promised to me is the king. And to be the Messiah meant that he was the redemption. It's hard for a mother to realize that your child is there to save you. But that's where it begins. Mary had to understand, just as we have to understand, that in order to walk with God, we had to admit our own desperate need for Christ. He didn't come to rule. He came to die for us. This morning, I want to encourage you that you cannot have as close a relationship with God until you first admit you have incredible faults and you have a need for a Savior. Thomas Constant tells a story in a book called The Three Edwards. He describes a man named Ronald III, but he was actually went by another name called Crassus, which meant fat. <laughs> awesome, right? So Ronald III, he, he ruled in Poland, or rather Belgium, rather. He was incredibly overweight. He just lived a, 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 a succulent life, had all the best meals, and just kept eating. And he got huge. Well, at the end of it, his brother, Edward, rebelled against him. He had a horrible civil war they fought. And so Edward finally captured Ronald, but he didn't kill him, which was the common thing. Instead, he made him a deal. He built a special, uh, I guess you could call it prison, around his brother. Now here's the interesting thing. It had no locks. All the windows were unlocked. It had one door that anyone could go in and out of at any time. But the issue was, was that the door was made so that only a very skinny man could go through. Same with the windows. So the deal was simple. You lose weight, I will gladly give you back your kingdom. But Edward also did something else. He would send the chef of the royal palace every single day to the windows and offer to make him any meal he desired. Well, as you can imagine, Ronald stayed in prison for 10 years, never escaped because he couldn't admit his need to lose weight. He refused. The only time he actually left, uh, he, his brother was eventually conquered. They released him. He died a year later of terrible health. But here's the point. The point is most of us are trapped in our own prison, and it's a prison of our own making because we can't admit our need for help. We struggle with sin. We struggle with saying, I don't know, you know, my marriage isn't where it needs to be. My, uh, my friendships aren't where it needs to be. I don't have the right relationship with my family, me and my spouse. We, you know, something's wrong there. And we often want to point the blame at someone else, but it starts with admitting the blame and the weakness in ourselves. Because once we start there at our brokenness, that's when 
God can show himself powerful in us. He can redeem us. He can change us. But it starts with us embracing our broken weakness. God will not show his power until we admit our weakness. Our weakness is necessary. One last thought, and I'll be done. Weakness reveals God's sovereignty and his beauty, and it's necessary. But what happens when we allow ourselves to get vulnerable? I like to tell stories, so I'll tell one more. There was a girl, her name was Anna. The only reason I know about her was because of a friend of mine who was preaching at um, the graduation service at uh, their school. It was a Christian school. Now, as he saw the people coming through, Anna immediately caught his mind. Why? Well, because otherwise she was... A very beautiful young lady, blonde hair, blue eyes. But her face was lobed right down the middle. A very distinct line, two lobes on each side. So my friend leaned over and he asked the um, the administrator of the school, he said, what, what is this? He said, well, that's Anna. He said, um, first off, let me tell you a little bit about her before I tell you why she looks that way. She's probably the greatest discipler in our church and in our school. She's won more people to Christ than anyone that I know, and then she's discipled them and, and, and watched them grow in the Lord. She, she's an incredible person. She's leaving this year. Uh, she's uh, considering going to a couple different seminaries. Uh, she's considering missionary work in particular. Wow. What happened? Well, uh, Anna's father is a drunk. He was abusive. One night he snapped. And he got a, a butcher's knife and he murdered Anna's mom. And she was just a little girl, but he hit her, he got her right in the face with that knife. Now, they were able to get him before he killed Anna, but obviously he mutilated He's been in prison ever since. But you would never know that. She's happy as can be, doesn't complain. <laughs> Incredible person. So my friend was sitting there thinking, why? Wow, how do you how do you go on with that? He saw a man walk in the back as you know everyone else was sitting down, he sat down, didn't think anything of it, but he saw men in the hallway in the back of the room start moving really fast, really worried. An usher came uh, as they were doing the, the, the beginning part and whispered in, in the ear of the administrator. And the administrator leaned over to my friend and he said, <clears throat> Don't look now. Um, did you see that guy that walked in the back there? I said, Yeah. He said, that's Anna's dad. He just got paroled. 
is here. <laughs> what do you do? He said, I've already got my ushers there. They're stationed. They're armed. I have no idea why he's even here, but he's not getting anywhere near her. I'll tell you that. Okay. <laughs> By the way, it's your turn to get up and speak. Go, go. <laughs> like, okay. Wow. All right. He got up, gave some announcements, didn't know what to think. He was supposed to speak again in a few moments, sat down. And then came the part where the graduates, I don't know if you've ever seen this, where they get like a rose or flowers or whatever, and they give it to the parents. Well, Anna walks up, and, he gra- and she grabs the rose. Now, her grandparents have been raising her, and she starts to walk over to them to give them the rose. But then she turns. She walks back. And before anyone can say anything, she's staring her dad in the eyes. And she said, I love you. I forgive you. And Jesus will too. And gave him the rose. There wasn't a dry eye left in the auditorium. The crazy part is that probably the person that was crying the most was Anna's dad. (laughs) He couldn't believe it. My friend got up. He was supposed to deliver, you know, the, the speech. And he said, I can't. I don't know what else to say. What she just did is far better than any any inspirational speech that I could give. If we could just love like that. Her story changed lives. Why? Because a broken young lady got vulnerable. And God used her to change the life of her father and everyone in that room. My encouragement this morning, get weak, get real, get vulnerable. And allow God to work through your weakness. And you'll change lives for his glory. Father, be with our people. Be with our church. Bless them today. Amen.